Well, good morning. My name is William Baker, and I am the Family Ministries Director here at Renew. So thank you for gathering with us this morning. I know some of you are gravely disappointed that Nathan's not up here. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to have to make do with me this morning. So, but anyways, do we have any uh, marketing and strategy gurus in here this morning? Does anyone just get jazzed about, like, mission statements? No one? Cool. <laughs> well, we're going to go through. We're going to play a little game, okay? Get, get, get in the right mindset. So I'm going to say a mission statement, and I want you to see if you can think of the company. Okay, so the first one. So to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, in one neighborhood at a time. Close. Boom. Starbucks. Good job. Okay, another one. To accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. Boom. Tesla. Yeah. Tesla. Okay. We're good. We're good. (laughs) Yeah, please raise your hand. All right, last one. To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. If you have a body, you are an athlete. Nike. That's right, Nike. And I mean, some of you may feel that you're not athletes, but let me reassure you that you are. All you need is a nice pair of Nike shoes, and boom, like magic, you're an athlete. Dave, if you want to go and get some Nikes, you'll be dunking on Henry and Ella in no time. Yeah. (laughs) But all jokes aside... Um, These mission statements for these companies help pave the way for how a company or an organization will act. Uh, They are the foundational piece that undergirds everything about the company, and they clearly set forth who a company is and what they are about. Uh, They also serve as a way to create a vision for the company. Uh, So so here, here are the vision statements for the companies that we just looked at. So for Starbucks, it's to establish Starbucks as the premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world, my main while maintaining our uncompromising principles while we grow. Okay, likewise, Tesla, to create the most compelling car company of the 21st century by driving the world's transition to electric cars. And then Nike is to remain the authentic, connective, and distinctive brand. So mission, mission statement states who a company is. And the vision statement states where the company is going or, or what the goal of that company is. And so some of you may be thinking, why are we talking about this this morning? Well, uh, I think it's a helpful way to, to view our text this morning in, in light of this uh, mission-vision paradigm. Uh, so in the book of Ephesians, Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians laying a beautiful theological exposition about who God is and what Christ has done for us. And this, this serves as, our, as the mission statement. Who we are as followers of, followers of Christ is fundamentally grounded in the person and work of Jesus and what he is doing in us by the Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Ephesians, Paul begins in chapter 1 by by praising God for bestowing spiritual blessings on us in Christ. That's 1-3. And then he highlights how God loves us by choosing us for adoption in Christ. That's 1-5. Also how that through the blood of Christ we have redemption and we have peace with God. It's 1-7. I mean, the, the whole first chapter is Paul praising God for the amazing work that God has done on our behalf. And then he goes on to, in chapter 2, and he fleshes this out even farther. 
If you were here uh, a few weeks back, I preached over Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And and the whole point of that passage is, is how we were dead in our sins. But God has made us alive through Jesus, raising us from the dead and seating us with him in the heavenly places. Salvation is all a work of God's grace. And all who believe in Jesus will be saved. And this, that is what the rest of chapter 2 is about. How God is uniting people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, whether Jew or Gentile. He's uniting them all and bringing them to himself. And the gospel ex- extends to all peoples throughout all times. And now there is no dividing wall between us and God. And now no dividing wall between each other. Finally, in chapter 3, as Paul closes his first section out, he elaborates on this mystery of the gospel and how it is now revealed in Christ, summing up everything with the glorious prayer of praise and adoration. So, so here are the closing two verses of the prayer in Ephesians 3, 20, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask and think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, Paul is magnifying the work of God so that we may know who we are in Christ. That Jesus has united us to God through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the first three chapters are his mission statement. Okay? So then the vision statement or the goal or the rest or the result of that reality is what Paul spends the next three chapters in Ephesians talking about. Paul applying the theology he has just laid out. That we are redeemed and we are renewed creatures who should live like it in our daily lives. Theology is always practical. I mean, in in, in 1 John 2.6, John says this, those who are in Christ ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. So, I mean, if if someone were to say, that they were Superman or Superwoman, I mean, you would expect them to do Superman or Superwoman type things. You would expect them to fly. You would expect them to have super strength. You would expect them to have laser beams shooting out of their eyes on command. Or you would expect all of these things. They would not just say they are Superman or Superwoman without a visible or tangible reality that that is indeed the case. And likewise, Paul is grounding us in this theological reality of what Christ has done for us and who we are in Christ so that we may display that to each other and to the world around us. And and the first thing that Paul hits on as we transition now into where we are in our text this morning, he's hitting on that because of the unity that we now have with God through Christ, we are to have unity within the church and with each other. Unity that manifests the unity that is in the triune God and what he has done to unite creation back to himself. And this is where we find ourselves in our text this morning in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. And so the main point, the main point of the sermon is we have been united to God through Christ by the Spirit and therefore should embody this heavenly reality by having unity in the church. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, please open them up to Ephesians chapter 4 and we will begin in verse one. So Paul, in this first verse, uh, th- or sorry, this first verse governs our entire passage. 
So if you have your Bibles, let's, let's read along. So Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The, the therefore, right? Anytime we come to a therefore in our text, we always ask the, the catchy phrase, what is the there, therefore? Right? So it's the, thank you. I thought it was funny. <laughs> the therefore, it, it's the switch in Paul's letter from the indicative to the imperative, from the doctrine to the duty, from the principle to the practice. And, and Paul, Paul does this a lot in his writings. Uh, he, he also does this in Romans 12.3. He does this in Colossians 3.5. And he does this in 1 Thessalonians 4.1. And in Paul's mind, the basis for our actions are always grounded in who God is and what Christ has done for us. And, and Paul urges the Ephesians here, he urges them to walk. And, and to walk simply means just to live. The picture is if you are in Christ it should be evident that you are in Christ by the way you live. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul is calling the Ephesians to live out the inward change of what Christ has done by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within them. Paul says that the, Paul lays this out earlier in, in uh, chapter one where he says the, the Spirit has sealed them in uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, but also that the Spirit is at work within them. He's building them up into a dwelling place for God. That's chapter 2, verses 22. Paul's exhorting them. He's pleading with them as their brother in Christ to live lives that are marked by the gospel. He himself was imprisoned for the gospel. That is why he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. I mean, Paul had been radically transformed by the gospel. Of Christ, And it was evident everywhere he went because he knew that through the power of the Spirit testifying to him, indeed, that who he was in Christ and that he, was, he could no longer live the same. I mean, we get this picture in Acts 9, I believe, where, where Paul is on the way to Damascus to literally imprison Christians, take them and take them back to Jerusalem, to have them tried and, and probably executed. But he is kicked off his horse as he's going, the Lord reveals himself to him and he is just radically changed from encountering Christ. It's this magnificent shift from seeing who Jesus is and how he has called him and now he lives completely different and transformed. Instead of persecuting Christians, he's now planting churches and he's growing the church. God is using him mightily. And so one thing I want to I ask this morning is have you been called by Christ? into the newness of life that he has purchased for you, for me, by his blood. And if you have not, maybe, maybe he's calling you this morning. I mean, listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who are weary and have heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Are you weary this morning? Are you tired? Are you tired of all the letdowns? of this world, all the vain pursuits that you get yourself trapped in? Do, do you feel the crushing weight of the pressures of life upon your shoulders? And come, come to Jesus. Find relief in his arms. Find hope for your soul in his words. Find the unending joy that he provides through his spirit and come to Christ and find forgiveness and find peace from your sins.
We're reminded in his word that the one who seeks will receive, or the one who asks will receive, the one who seeks will find, and the one who knocks, the door will be open to him. That is the God we serve. That is who King Jesus is. But, but now let's go back to our text. What, what, what does it mean to walk in a worthy manner? The word worthy uh, typically was used for a laborer who worked and was worthy of their wages that he or she would receive. But uh, more specifically in our context this morning, it means displaying the reality of what it means to be a son or daughter of God. And, and Paul tells us exactly how, how that should look. And so as we move on in our text, we look at verse 2, and it shows us how. With all humility and gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love. So first, we have with humility and gentleness. So I don't know about you, but I struggle with this at times. I mean, you can ask my wife. She will tell you. I can struggle with this at times. I can be proud and I can be prideful. I think and act like, like I know everything, when in reality, I don't. But, but as, a, as a result of that, I mean, I leave, I leave her feeling dumb or, or thinking that, that what she has to say does not matter. And this, this does not promote unity at all. Being proud and prideful, it only sows disunity. And that is the part of us that the gospel needs to extinguish within us. It needs to kill it. And when we lose sight of the mission, right, of who we are in Christ, we no longer have vision. And we cannot act as new creatures that the Spirit is transforming us into. So, so this word humility uh, that, that, that is translated in our Bibles as humility, in the Greek and Roman culture, it was actually really uh, impious or considered, it was looked down upon to be considered humble. And in, in the ancient world, it was considered a, a good thing to think of yourself or to think of as oneself with pride and self-satisfaction. To have humility was considered a, a pitiable weakness. And I, I think similarly, similarly today, that, that is the case. I mean, the world tells us to take pride in ourselves, in our work, in our accomplishments. I mean, the, the list could go on about anything we could take pride in. I mean, the world tells us to seek truth and worth by looking inwards, by looking towards ourselves. I mean, how, how prideful is that? To say in to say that I know what is best and I have the ultimate authority and autonomy to do what is right in my own eyes. I mean, that is the very thing the Bible tells us that leads to death. I mean, it, it was pride that was the very first sin of the man and woman in the garden. Adam and Eve, they, they saw the fruit. God, God made everything perfect. He told them what they could do, what to not to do. And they went to the tree they took and they ate. Trying to seize authority and autonomy for themselves. Rather than humbling themselves before God and trusting in his goodness and in his wisdom. And this is what we all experience now. Every sin is based in pride. All sin is marked by pride. 
It's you and me thinking we know what is best or acting in such a way to gratify or bring glory to ourselves. We are no different than our parents, Adam and Eve. However, in the Bible, humility is always looked on in, as, as a positive, as a, as a good thing, as a godly thing. I mean, in Philippians 2, 3, we read, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, again, in 1 Peter, Peter is exhorting the elders here, and he, he tells them, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, this is a complete 180 shift. Rather than looking at ourselves, I mean, towards our accomplishments, towards our social status, towards our likes on Facebook, our hard work, our interest, which all come at the expense of others, Paul is instructing the Ephesians to put on humility. Consider others as more important than yourselves. I mean, in doing this, we, we are following Christ's example. I mean, he is the very definition of humility. And that what, that's what Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2, just after that. How, how Christ, who for us in our salvation, humbled himself, taking on flesh. He went to the cross to do what we could not do. He didn't have to. No, he chose to out of his own free will. Christ is the picture of humility. But it's, it's not just humility, but it's humility that is paired with gentleness. So what does Paul mean by, by the word gentle? Right, the word is commonly used for uh, wild animals who were tamed. Think, think of a horse. I mean, a horse has tremendous power and tremendous strength. And when a horse is tamed, it does not mean that it loses that power or strength, but rather that that power and strength is under control, right? It's under the control of its master. It can still run as fast. It can still pull just as much stuff as it could before, but rather this power is now controlled. I mean, it, it, is, it is the opposite, like gentleness, this idea of gentleness is the opposite of vindictive, vengeful, or self-serving. To be gentle means to be in control of all your emotions so as not to have outbursts of anger that are self-satisfying and leave a path of destruction in your wake. I mean, I can attest to this. I, I've had plenty of outbursts of anger. I mean, let alone in traffic. You know, someone cuts you off and you just get upset. <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's not what it means to be gentle. I mean, one commentator, he stated, he stated this definition concerning this word. The man or woman who is gentle is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. And may, may I add, always angry in the right ways and never angry in the wrong ways. To be gentle is not to be weak. That is not what gentleness means at all. I mean, when we think of gentle, I, I think we think it means someone who is soft-spoken, never angry, maybe kind of a pushover, uh, never sticks up for themselves. Right? But that's, that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what he means by, by gentleness. I mean, in, in Numbers 12, 3, Moses is described as the meekest person on the earth or the most gentle, gentlest person on the earth. Yet Moses was not a pushover and he, he never didn't speak out about things. I mean, when he came down from Mount Sinai, and saw the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, he was so furious that, he could, that they could do this. 
to dishonor God who saved them from the hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, who had provided food and water for them in the desert. That is righteously gentle. That's what gentleness is. To be able to exhort and rebuke someone, but tenderly and godly, to embody Christ in doing it. Now Moses was imperfect, just like you and me, but but I'm trying to highlight something for us this morning that is littered throughout the scriptures. To be gentle, as as, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones states, is to be finished with yourself altogether. I mean, no wonder Paul groups these two qualities together. They go hand in hand. To be humble and gentle is to understand that we are completely dependent upon God for everything. And that leads us to think of ourselves less and more about God and about others. Jesus is the perfect example of gentleness. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, he describes himself. The only time in Scripture where Jesus describes his character, he says of himself that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And Jesus is not weak. But he is also not rude or he's not brash. He has a way about his words and his interactions with people that are both tender yet tough. That they are convicting yet they are comforting. I mean, may may the Spirit of God work in us to give us wisdom to be like Christ to those around us. Not self-seeking, but considering others over ourselves. And then next, Paul, Paul says also with patience. And this is the last quality Paul states in the second half of, of verse 2. But, but he qualifies what patience means, bearing with one another in love. It is the idea of, of forbearance. What, what better picture of this idea uh, is there than, than God's patience towards us? I mean, this is one of the key terms the Bible uses to describe God's character. And it's him being long-suffering, or in other words, him being patient. God is so holy that that not even the slightest imperfection can stand in his presence. But God is also patient. And in love, he is patient toward us. Our God is a God who gently but firmly is renewing our hearts and our minds into his likeness. When we were far from God, when I was far from God, when you were far from God, when we were far from him, doing what we wanted to do, bringing glory to ourselves, treating his creation, treating our friends, treating our family, treating our coworkers, people we interact with on a daily basis, like when we were treating them like they are simply an obstacle in the way for our own glory, when we are doing all these things, man, God was and he still is patient with us. I mean, in Romans, Paul describes that this patience of God is what leads us to repentance. That when God saw all that we had done, all that we are doing, all that we will do, when he saw all of that, he saved us. He is the author and he is the perfecter of our faith. But he is, all, he is the one who is so patient with us even as we continually mess up. And this is what leads us to be patient towards one another because God is patient with us. 
I mean, so, so, so these, these three qualities, this humility, these gentleness and patience, are to be markers in the lives of those who believe. So that the church may be unified and on our mission for God. They reveal something about who God is, about his character. And we are tasked with displaying that to each other and to all those around us so that the work of God may be evident to the world. But lastly, it's, it's, it's not just embodying those qualities, but it's about how we embody those qualities too. And it's by the power of the spirit that is at work within us. It's not of our own volition. So the Spirit has already accomplished this work in our hearts and our minds. I mean, read with me in verse 3. Paul writes, he says, eager to maintain or to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is clear that the, that the Holy Spirit is the source of this unity. I mean, we already stated back in chapter 2, verse 22, where, where Paul talks about us, the Spirit is building us up to a dwelling place with God. But also, uh, in his prayer towards the end of chapter 3, in verse 16, he says that the, the Spirit is the one who strengthens us in our inner being. Paul, Paul's charge to the Ephesians is for us today as well, to keep this unity that has already, be, has already been attained for us by the power of the Spirit at work in our lives. Right? We, we are not robots who are now programmed by the Spirit to display humility, gentleness, and patience all the time. Right? It's not like I put a, a new disc in my back pocket and I'm perfectly humble, I'm perfectly gentle, I'm perfectly patient all the time. And it's just like a, a switch. That's, that's not it. My, my, my will and my affections are not stirred up in that way. No, we, we are active agents in this sanctification process. process. The Spirit has renewed our hearts and our minds to participate in what God has already accomplished for us. This is displayed in how we treat one another and act towards one another. I mean, this is why the, the New Testament letters were written. Once we are saved, we are justified before God by Christ alone. We are not instantly perfect and we will never be perfect on this side of heaven but our lives should be constantly marked by a transformative process into the likeness of Christ, which takes place throughout our entire lives. And as we see the glory and the goodness of God, and we see how great our sin is, and the Spirit is working in us, He's convicting us of sin and pushing us to display His character to each other and to those around us. He is our helper. And this is all characterized by peace. Because we have peace with God through Christ, we have peace with one another. Displaying this heavenly reality of what has taken place in our lives to each other who are followers of Christ. So, so how do we live in a worthy manner to which we have been called? By looking to God who gave his only son so that we may be saved and pleading with the Spirit who is at work within each of us who believe to make us more humble, to make us more gentle, to make us more patient, so that we're being molded into his likeness. But that's not it. That's not, that's not the, 
full picture. I mean, like a three-year-old, we are left with asking the question, why? Why? Why, why, why? Why does Paul continue to urge the believers to keep the unity and display unity? Well, because of who the triune God is. I mean, read with me now in verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul, Paul, Paul shifts now. He uses the word one seven times to stress the importance of the unity for believers by looking to the work of the Trinity. There is something very poetic about these verses that lends itself as a helpful way to recall unity we have as believers because of who God is. All these ones flow seamlessly together, highlighting the unity or the oneness of our God. I mean, here's what I mean. Track with me in your Bibles. Okay, so first we have the Spirit. There is one church. There is one body who has been unified to its head, Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Although we may be different, right, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, we are one body in Christ. The work of the one Spirit is unifying the body together so that we may be of one mind. Because we only have one hope. And that one hope is Christ. And this is why Paul flows right into one Lord in verse 5, referring to Jesus, who has given us the one faith, which is it's the gospel, and has been realized in the life of the believers through the one baptism with Christ. We have been baptized into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and now we are united to him through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is all culminating in a restored relationship for us with the one God and Father of all, who is overall, who is sovereign and in control of all circumstances. I mean, who is through all, working in us through the work of Jesus, and who is in all, abiding in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. It is all a work of the one divine Godhead that has one will but subsists in three persons who are the very definition of unity. I mean, Jesus in John 17, okay. In John 17, while praying his high priestly prayer, he gives us a glimpse into this unity. His prayer is so Trinitarian. And, And he speaks of the oneness he and the Father share in how we, the church, right, play a part in that. Listen to Jesus' basis for unity in his prayer. He says in John 17, 21, that they may all be one, referring to his disciples, to those who believe, to those who will believe in the future, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The reason for unity amongst believers is so the world may know Jesus. And Paul is saying something similar here. 
I mean, this is why we live lives in a worthy manner. Because our unity within the church reveals something substantial about who God is. The unity that marks our God is a definitive mark of his church as well. I mean, when the, when the world looks at the church, do they, do they see unity or they, do they see disunity? Do they see humility and gentleness or do they see pride? Do they see patience or do they see anger and strife? And likewise, I mean, the church is comprised of individuals. So I ask myself, and I, and I want to ask, ask all of us this morning, are we sowing unity or are we sowing disunity? Are we each humbling ourselves under the gracious hand of God and submitting ourselves to him? All of our hopes, all of our wants, all of our dreams, are we asking the Spirit to rid us of our pride? and season our words and our actions with salt out of love and respect for our brother, sister, in Christ, for our neighbors? Are we forbearing with one another? Are we being patient and long-suffering with one another, not being quick to anger, but seeking peace and pointing one another to Christ, who is our peace? Paul is so concerned with how we conduct ourselves because how we live and how we act towards each Towards each other, it displays who God is. But the, the most amazing thing about all of this is that we can actually walk and live this out because the Holy Spirit is at work in us and he has already attained it for us. And he's in process of sanctifying each one of us who believes. That is so amazing that God helps us. He saves us by himself and he helps us by himself. Our God is so amazing. He is so gentle. He's so patient with us. And may we gaze upon that. May we be changed as a result. So um, as, we, as we close this morning, I, I want us as a, as a church to, to, to reflect on our, our own mission statement and our own vision, vision statement as a local body of believers here at Renew. And, and if you're not, if you're not a uh, regular attender here. This is a good opportunity to reflect on on who a church is, who who they should be, and and what the mission and what the vision is. So our our mission statement here at um, Renew, there's an acronym we called LILO, to live in and live out, but it's it's posted right here for you, and I think it's also up there. But we we want to be people. We, We help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, this, this statement, it, it finds its grounds in the person and work of Christ. It starts with living in, being transformed by the power and work of the gospel. That's the only reason by which we can live out. Because we have ourselves have been changed. Who we are in Christ and what he has done shapes who we are. I mean, the gospel is at the very heart of the church and governs everything about us. And as a result, it gives the church, it gives renew, it gives us vision. And our vision statement can be said in this way. We want to be a church where God's power to make all things new in the gospel is experienced. The only way this will be seen instead of our church is if we are unified together, being characterized by humility, gentleness, and patience. 
But first it has to begin with God and and us reflecting on who he is and what he has done for us in Christ and how the Spirit is at work within each of us. I mean, doctrine, it always propels duty. So let us, let us look to Christ, especially as we come into the new year. Man, what does the Lord have for us? How, how might the Lord use renew? How might the gospel continually shape and transform our hearts so that it will shape and transform the community in which we reside, even the school? So let us pray. Let us be of one mind, seeking the glory of God. And may the gospel be proclaimed as a result of renew being here in this place. And may we just be transformed into his likeness every single day. Let us pray. Lord, thank you. God, thank you for just who you are. Lord, that you are so gracious. Lord, that you are so gentle towards us. Lord, that you you humbled yourself. You took on the form of a servant, doing for us what we could not. Going to the place where, where we cannot go. Where, where life is not found for us, Lord, but there's only life found in you because you achieved it on our behalf. Spirit, we ask that you just work in our hearts, stir up our affections, convict us, Lord, of, of, of where we need to uh, grow into our head, who is Christ. Spirit, make us more tender. Make us more gentle. But make us more firm and bold in a mysterious way that the world looks on us and is just in awe of what you have done and what you are doing, Lord. All all the glory is yours. So Spirit, um, as we cap off this year, God, thank you for Renew. And just propel us into what you would have for us in 2024. Lord, to display who you are rightly to the world around us and to each other. And may we build one another up in love by showing humility, by showing gentleness, by being patient with each other. Lord, let us be a church that is marked by the gospel. Let us be individuals who are marked by the gospel. God, we love you. You deserve all praise and all glory. Do with us as you please. Do with this word as you please. Lord, to your name be glory forever and ever. Amen.